As we get started, I want to just stop real quick. I want to ask you a question that you can answer to yourself or with your family, whoever's with you. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling? Simple as that. You know, some of you may be feeling excited. Uh, some may be sad. Something's happened in your life that's got you a little bit down. Maybe you're upset about something today. You know, something's taken place at home that's just kind of rubbed you the wrong way. How many of you, though, are, are feeling happy? How many of you are feeling happy today? There's a recent study uh, that was done of Americans that says that only 33%, only 33% of Americans would say that they are genuinely feeling happy. Now, that's pretty low because in our Declaration of Independence, it says that all people in our nation have the God-given right to the pursuit of happiness. Yet only 33% of people seem to be finding it. So I'm going to stop and look at some of the ways that we pursue happiness in our culture here today. And one of the ways, as I remember growing up and and feeling this way myself, is marriage, right? We look to marriage or wanting to find that special someone, and we believe that if we could just find Mr. or Mrs. Right, then we will live our lives uh, out in, in pure happiness, living happily ever after. Yet a a recent study this year has revealed that 42 to 45 percent of first-time marriages don't ever make it to happily ever after. That's sad. That's sad. Up to 60 percent of second marriages, over 74 percent of third marriages never make it to happily ever after. Now, I'm not saying this is a great thing. Marriage is something that we should find joy and happiness in. God has designed it that way, yet it seems that as we look to marriage, we look to finding Mr. or Mrs. Right, it's not fulfilling that desire for happiness that we all have inside of us. So what else? There's a country song that says that... um, I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it could buy me a boat. And we laugh at the country song, it's kind of comical, yet the Federal Reserve right now is saying that consumer debt in America is skyrocketing, and right now it's sitting at right around $4.1 trillion. $4.1 trillion of consumer debt in our nation today. You know what that tells us? Our stuff isn't making us happy. It might make us happy for a little bit, but then it kind of wears off and we got to go get more stuff and we're spending money that we don't have on stuff that isn't actually making us happy. There was a pre-COVID shutdown survey that had gone out that has revealed that 61% of Americans right now are feeling lonely. Our friendships aren't making us happy. Even we're living in a time where we're more connected than ever before. We've got social media connections, more people than we ever know. I was looking through my Facebook friends this week, and there's so many people on there that I I don't even remember how I know them. We have the internet, and yet, despite all of this, 61% of Americans are saying that they're lonely. They're not finding happiness in their relationships. What about our careers? find fulfillment and happiness in our jobs, right, as we pursue these careers that are going to make us memorable. And yet 83% of Americans have work-related stress that they take home with them. 83%, that's pretty high. You know, all this to say, it sounds like here in America, we need a little bit of Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry, be happy. 
We're struggling to be happy, which is sad given that uh, we say that we all have the right to the pursuit of happiness. So why is this? Why is it that we're struggling so much? I want to invite you to open up to Psalm chapter 1 today. This is where we're going to be spending time. We're uh, looking through different psalms this summer. Today we're in Psalm chapter 1. And now as we work through this series, Summer Playlist, we're going to be learning from different psalms that are having different genres. There's lament psalms, there's psalms of thanksgiving, there's psalms of royalty, there's psalms of praise, and there's psalms of wisdom. That's what Psalm chapter 1 is. Psalm chapter 1 is a psalm of wisdom. Very similar, very similar to that of a proverb in many ways. And as we open up to Psalm chapter 1, right in verse 1, we meet an individual. The psalmist says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And now, if we were to kind of make that statement a little more wordy to help us understand exactly what he means by blessed is the man, we could say, oh, the happiness of the man. See, it's an exclamatory statement. Oh, how happy is the man. And so we see right off the get-go in the book of Psalms, they're starting it right off, introducing us to this man who has found extreme happiness. Oh, how happy is the individual and we're going to go through this uh, today as we study this psalm, and we're going to learn about this true happiness. So without further ado, let's read Psalm 1 together and see what the scriptures say. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted like streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together as we dive into this psalm. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that it shares with us. And God, as we pray now, we ask that you would open our hearts to the truth from this first psalm. That we would receive your word, we would be encouraged by your word, even challenged by your word. God, we ask above all things that you would be honored in each of our hearts now as we listen to its teaching. Even myself, Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. True happiness. True happiness. Not the temporary stuff, but true, genuine happiness. How do we find it? What does it take for this individual in Psalm 1 to be oh so happy as the psalmist proclaims? Well, we're going to see a few different things, but at the very beginning as we look into verse 1, we see right on the outset that true happiness is found first by rejecting the ways of the ungodly. Rejecting the ways of the ungodly. Notice there's three different phrases in verse 1 here. 
The, the blessed man, the happy man, is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. There's phrase one. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, phrase two. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, phrase three. And what we see here, the psalmist is drawing our attention to, is a holistic view of the life of an individual. We've got the counsel of the wicked, we've got the, the way of the sinner, and we have the seat of the scoffer. And what we're going to see here is that the psalmist is bringing to attention that the truly happy person rejects the way of the ungodly when it comes to what they believe, how they behave, and where they belong. So starting with what they believe. He says they do not uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked, what the psalmist is referring to here, is really, it's a way of thinking. It's a matter of belief. The truly happy person rejects the way of thinking of the world. And to the contrary of that would mean that he adopts the way of thinking of God. He thinks the way God has called him to think. It's a matter of what he believes. It's a fundamental, it's the root that sprouts up into our behavior, which is the second phrase. Who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. The way of sinners refers to a, a matter of behavioral patterns that would start to, to grow into the life of an individual. Growing out of uh, the thinking, the way of thinking that he's adopted, that he, we've already talked about. And then third, his belonging is referring to the seat of scoffers. The seat referred to here deals with an assembly or a congregation, someplace that you would come and dwell. And so the, the psalmist is saying, listen, the, the truly blessed man, the man who is oh so happy, he rejects the ways of the ungodly when it comes to what the ungodly believe, how they behave, and where they belong. Now, before we move on from this point, we also note that there's some verbs here. There's some verbs that deal with the progression of godlessness in this individual's life, in what he rejects. We go from walking to standing to sitting. Now, if you've been to any sort of a party, you can understand what this is like, right? If you go to a party and, and you're walking around and you feel uncomfortable, maybe you don't know all too many people, you're going to walk around a little bit so you don't get stuck in one place. You can kind of scout the area out. And when we deal with the walking, that's what we're dealing with here, going along with, kind of heading in the direction of the wicked. But you're still moving along. But then we move from walking to standing, so now we've stopped. We've taken up some sort of a residence here, right? I'm standing on the stage. I have not moved for the last bit. I am here. And so when we talk about standing in the way of sinners, it is becoming familiar with, starting to adopt those behaviors. Your life is beginning to look like that of a sinner, one who is ungodly, who has rejected God. The truly happy individual rejects this. Their life is going to look different. And then lastly, to sit is to take up a dwelling. To really, what the idea is, is to take up belonging there, like we've talked about. You're going to sit down and you're settling in. You're getting comfortable with your sinfulness. And so the psalmist here is simply saying, listen, the truly happy man, the truly happy individual 
rejects the thinking of the ungodly, the behavior of the ungodly, and his belonging is not with the ungodly. Now what can happen is we think about this a little legalistically at times, don't we? And we can say, well, you know what, Uh, if I'm honest, sometimes I struggle with thinking like the world thinks. I struggle with these things. But you know what, that's okay because I'm not sitting in the seat of scoffers. I'm only in that first phase. So that's okay. But the psalmist here doesn't give that, right? He says, blessed is the man. Oh, how happy is the man who doesn't do any of it. So the truly happy individual doesn't give in to the worldly thinking, the worldly behavior at all. But, but, as we work into verse 2, but, contrary to these things, contrary to walking in the counsel of the wicked, contrary to standing in the way of sinners, contrary to sitting in the seat of scoffers, this individual, the truly happy individual, delights in the law of the Lord. So, one, he rejects the ways of the ungodly, and two, he relishes the word of God. True happiness is found by relishing the word of God. Now, what does this mean when he delights in the law of the Lord? What's it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? Well, that word is often used when our minds become preoccupied with something, right? And it's often used in scripture of the love and affection that a young man has for the woman that he loves. He delights in her. So I want you to think back, or maybe you're even living there now. You got a crush, and you can't help but think about them all day. You're sitting in school and you're thinking about them. You're at work and you're thinking about them. You're at home and you're thinking about them. You're trying to go to bed and you can't stop thinking about them. You delight. You delight in this person. That's what this word means is to to have a deep love, to take pleasure and joy in this. And he delights in the law of the Lord. Now, Here's an interesting thought. When this was written, the law of the Lord consisted mainly of just the Pentateuch. We didn't have the whole canon of Scripture at that time. They had the the Torah. And so he's saying, listen, the, the truly righteous individual, the truly happy individual, delights in the Torah. Now how much time have you spent reading in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? Have you ever hit Leviticus? It's tough, isn't it? but the truly happy individual delights in it. And we can broaden this now, that the law of the Lord would include all of his precepts, all of his decrees, which would be the full counsel of Scripture. So the truly happy individual relishes the Word of God, takes great joy in the Word of God. And for this, we have to move from this idea of duty and guilt when it comes to uh, studying God's Word to joy and delight. Right, because sometimes we will say, hey, you know what, I'm going to, I need to read the Bible. We'll tell each other all the time, we need to read the Bible. I need to read scriptures more. And so we adopt this kind of mindset that it becomes a task to do on our daily list. So we'll get up and maybe you have, you're subscribed to the verse of the day. And so you'll get a text message in the morning that has the, the verse of the day on it. You read it and hey, I've been in God's word today. Or you're working through a reading plan. You're, you're saying, you know what? I commit to reading one chapter of Scripture a day. 
and you'll open up to Psalm chapter 1, that's where we're at right now, and, and you'll read these six verses, and as you come to the end, but the way of the wicked will perish and close it, set it down, and you're on with your life. And you hardly remember what it is that you read. You haven't mulled on it, you haven't uh, been fed by it spiritually, you've just checked it off a list. So that when you're in a conversation with somebody, oh yeah, I, I've been reading, I've been reading in the book of Psalms. Yep. Well, what's God been teaching you? Well, uh, you get a little puzzle as your brain starts to race. What has God been teaching me? What has he been teaching me in his word? So we need to move from this sense of duty when it comes to reading God's word to a sense of delight. And you'll notice as we work through verse 2 here that the second part of it says, And on his law he meditates day and night. On his law, he meditates day and night. I want to throw it out there. Here's a theory of mine. That perhaps we don't delight so much in the law of the Lord and the word of God because we don't meditate on it. We read it and kind of treat it and uh, think of it like fast food Christianity. Where I can just breeze through and I'm going to understand it. If I don't understand it right away, then I get irritated. I get frustrated. Maybe I'm discouraged from wanting to read and study the Word of God. And, and so I put it down and I don't spend the time to meditate on God's Word. But the psalmist here says that the truly happy individual delights in the law of the Lord and then meditates on it day and night. Now, what does it mean to meditate on God's Word? Now, I'm going to give you a couple pictures here. Two pictures and then a kind of a, a practical idea of it. Now, I want you to picture a lion that has captured its prey and is laying there with its prey as it will kind of growl softly in a lowly tone right over its prey that's going to be dinner. That's to meditate. To meditate on something. Or maybe it's something a little more contextual to where we're at today. You're not just finding lions as we're walking around here in the Midwest, but I bet you if you drive around enough, you'll find some cows. And you know how cows eat? They chew their cud over and over and over. It's kind of disgusting. But to meditate, to really chew on the Word of God, in the most practical sense of it, to meditate on God's Word is to murmur. To murmur. As if we're reading this and, you know, as you're meditating on God's word throughout the day, you're speaking it back to yourself over and over and over and over again as you go throughout the day. You're meditating on it. You're not just reading it, checking off the list, setting it down, and waiting until you come back tomorrow. But what you read, you meditate. You let it sink in. You let it saturate your life. You mull it over. What does this mean what does this teach me about my God? Lord, what, how do you expect this to affect my life? And you're praying through it. You're taking it for the Lord all day. That is what it means to meditate on God's word. It's not something to be checked off. See, as believers, we need to understand and remember that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, 
He's not talking about a Right Now Media uh, collection. He's not talking about a library of books out there on how to live the Christian life. Those things are great. They're, they're wonderful tools for the believer. But what Paul's talking about is the word of God itself. And we need to be reminded as Christians, as we relish God's word, as we delight in God's word, that his word, the Bible itself, is sufficient for us to live a godly life. That's exactly what he said. It is complete, equipping, good enough to equip for every good work, the word of God. And sadly, so many times we get discouraged from, from believing that we can actually understand God's word. That we need somebody else to explain it to us. We need some book to, to help bring it out. And while those are helpful tools, let them not replace the word of God itself. So let me ask you, your time in God's word, are you spending it directly with God himself? Are you spending quality time, you and the scriptures, really digging into it, really letting it sink in? Or is a lot of your time using the tools that come with it? Let's meditate on God's word. Let's delight in God's word. The truly happy individual delights in the word of God. So true happiness is found by rejecting the ways of the ungodly. It's found in relishing in the word of God. And lastly, as we look at verses 3 through 6, true happiness is found in reaping the reward. Reaping the reward. And it's not until these end verses that the psalmist actually equates in many ways the blessed man with being the righteous man, but he does so in verses 5 and 6. But he refers to this blessed man, this, oh, how happy individual, as a, a tree. He compares him to a tree. And this tree, he says, is planted by streams of water. Verse 3, the first part of verse 3. This tree is planted by streams of water. Now, we're not talking about a tree that's growing randomly in a forest preserve somewhere. We are talking about a tree that is strategically and intentionally placed in exactly the right spot that it is going to thrive. That's what the psalmist is talking about. It's planted in exactly the right place where this tree is going to thrive. And he goes on to that at the end of verse 3. He says, in all that he does... He prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. And now we need to stop here for a second. Because we start using a word like prospers, and we use it in the Christian context. And for a lot of people, red flags are going up all over the place. What you mean to tell me, Jeremy, that in all that he does, he prospers? Isn't that sound a little bit like the prosperity gospel right now? That if we just follow God, if I just read the word of God enough, then I'm going to be prosperous in everything I do? Well, we need to stop and define what it means here. What does it mean to prosper? Now, if we look at the context, prosper doesn't seem so much to mean that he's going to be monetarily successful, that he's going to carry tons of influence and have power and authority in life. But what it seems to indicate is that this tree prospers as a tree. Simple as that. Prospers as a tree. Now look, 
He says in, in the middle of verse 3, this tree is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Now, he doesn't say anything about this tree becoming something other than a tree. But by its nature, by its character, it produces fruit and it does not wither. So when we talk here about the truly happy individual finding uh, prosperity in delighting in the word of God, we're not talking about saying, hey, you're going to become so wealthy. God's going to bless you with all the wealth you could possibly imagine. And, and you're going to be healthy. You know, we're not talking about that. If you take this tree analogy back to who we are as Christians, we could say a Christian will prosper in all that he does as a Christian to produce fruit, your faith will continue on, it'll persevere, you'll be rooted so when the difficult times come, they're not going to wash your faith away. You will prosper as a child of God. You will prosper as a Christian. That's what he's talking about here. Now there's a, a quote that you've probably heard a million times that goes, a Bible that is worn and falling apart from use usually belongs to someone who isn't. A Bible that's falling apart because of use usually belongs to someone who isn't. What an encouragement for us. I remember in high school, my Bible teacher, his Bible literally was just falling apart. Pages were just stuck in there. It, was, it looked, it was in bad shape. And he would talk about this. And that encouraged me. I said, you know what? Someday I want my Bible to be falling apart. Not because I mistreat it, but because I'm using it. Because I'm in it. See, this psalm would seem to indicate that that quote is pretty true. The one who's planted by streams of water, the water in this sense being God's word, will produce fruit in season. Its leaf will not wither. He will prosper as a child of God. will prosper as a Christian. Now, verse 4 continues the picture. And the psalmist says, but the wicked, they're not like that, that happy individual. The wicked aren't like a tree. They're not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, it's an interesting comparison here because the psalmist doesn't say that the wicked are like a barren tree or that the wicked are like a dead tree. He goes way beyond that. He says the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. And now, for us to understand this, we have to know that chaff is dead. It's, it's worthless. You know, they, they didn't use chaff in those days. They, it was literally just blown away by the wind as garbage. There was no fruitfulness to it. It was a completely worthless piece of the harvest. And what they would do is they would take their, the fruit of their harvest and they would take it to the threshing floor. And they'd separate the grain from the chaff and then they would pick it up and throw it into the air and as the wind is blowing through, the chaff would be light enough that the wind would blow it away and separate it from the fruit. And the fruit would be heavy enough, it would drop back down. And so you would separate the chaff from the fruit. Now, we don't use threshing floors today, but this fall, you'll see combines out in the field. Most of you. 
and a combine threshes the harvest. But it does so inside the machine. So you've got the grain tank up top that's going to collect all the fruit of the harvest. And then outside the back of the combine, you're going to see spewing out of there all kinds of dust and leaves and all this stuff. That's the chaff. They don't use that chaff. A chaff just goes back in the field. They've gotten the fruit that they need. And that's what the psalmist is saying the wicked are like. And though right now we may struggle to feel that way at times, like it seems like the wicked are so prosperous, but the scriptures teach us that there's a day coming where the wicked will be separated from the, from the righteous. The chaff will be separated from the fruit. And the psalmist here alludes to this day of judgment that's coming in verses 5 and 6. Therefore, therefore, since the wicked are not like a tree, since the wicked are like the chaff to be blown away, they will not stand in the judgment. They won't stand in the judgment, nor will sinners be in the congregation of the righteous. Now you'll notice, you'll notice if you went back up to the beginning in verse 1, it says that the, the blessed person, the truly happy individual, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He's not in the congregation of the wicked. And then there's a day coming when the wicked will not be in the congregation of the righteous. They can't be. God will separate them. Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now these teach us a couple things about God. Verse 6 tells us that, that God knows, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Right now, the righteous and the wicked mingle. We're, we're rubbing shoulders with each other as we go throughout life. But God knows the reality of our hearts. God, we can't fool him. We can fool each other. You can fool me. You can fool your pastors. But we cannot fool God. God knows and there's a day coming when the wicked will be separated from the righteous. And God is going to take action against them. He's being merciful and gracious for now. And so I plead with you today, if you're uh, watching this, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now is the time. Right now. Don't wait till later. You're not guaranteed another day. See, the, the righteous... The truly blessed man on the day of judgment will recognize, and as, they, as we study the scriptures, we know it to be true that we are not righteous because of ourselves. I, I'm not righteous because I study the word of God, but the word of God tells me that my righteousness cannot be earned on my own. As a matter of fact, when left to my own devices, I am incredibly wicked. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave God. Yet, my righteousness is in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth a couple thousand years ago. And he lived his life perfectly. Perfectly. Without sin, without messing up a perfect life. He fulfilled the law of the Lord. He fulfilled it. James says that if we sin in just one component of the law, then we are guilty of breaking the whole thing. Yet Jesus was perfect. He fulfilled it, the whole thing. And then he went to the cross. 
and he laid his life down as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for the sin that we have committed. See, when I've sinned, when you sinned, the penalty that we're due is death. And as Jesus didn't sin at all, he, he wasn't due that penalty, but he paid it and rose again from the grave three days later. And he conquered sin and he conquered death. That whosoever would believe in him to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you'll be saved. That our righteousness is not of ourselves, but it is a gift from God that Jesus has given us his righteousness, his perfection. He's taken our sin upon himself at the cross and he nailed it to the cross and he buried it in the grave and he rose victorious so that on that day of judgment we'll stand before the Lord and not say, well, God, I, I did so much good. I read the Bible every day. Well, most days, you know, sometimes I fell asleep or I missed it. We'll say, Lord, my righteousness is Christ. I plead Christ. He paid the penalty for my sin. So I plead with you today, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, do it now. Now is the time. So we circle back to the beginning. All these things that we look to for happiness buying stuff, you know, surrounding ourselves with friends and, and family, with popularity, with influence, with you, you name it. The true source of happiness can't be found in this world. You're not going to find it at the store. You're not going to find it online, but you're going to find it in the Word of God. So let me ask you today, how are you feeling? Where are you looking for happiness? Because it's here. It's offered to those who believe in God and trust in His Son. Oh, the happiness of the individual who rejects the ways of the ungodly, who relishes in the Word of God and reaps the reward. Let us be people marked by happiness whose source is God alone. Praise be to Jesus.